This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can follow Berkeley Talks wherever you listen to your podcasts. New episodes come out every other Friday. Also, we have another podcast, Berkeley Voices, that shares stories of people at UC Berkeley and the work that they do on and off campus. Uh, So I know that we're a little bit early by Berkeley standards, but the room is full enough already that I feel like we might as well get going and leave more time for our uh, distinguished awardee to to deliver his talk. Uh, So my name is David Brockman. Uh, I'm an associate professor of political science here in the uh, Department of Political Science at UC Berkeley. I'm also the current faculty director of the Citroen Center for Public Opinion Research. Uh, The Citroen Center was started about six years ago uh, by the friends and former students and colleagues of Professor Jack Citrin, who we have here today, um, to study, to focus on the study of public opinion, um, uh, largely in the United States. Um, so we support student research. Uh, we support events like this, uh, public conversation. Um, and uh, my favorite part of my role as the uh, uh, director of the Citrin, faculty director of the Citrin Center, um, is is today's event. Um, and being able to uh, recognize um, some just fantastic contributions to the study of public opinion. Um, so when we were uh, brainstorming this year who would deserve the, the Citroen Award this year, and it's, a, it's an impressive list of people who have, have earned the award in the past of the, you know, the leading lights of public opinion uh, researcher, uh, research and polling, um, someone mentioned the name Nate Cohn. Um, and as soon as I heard that name, I said, ah, that, that is who deserves this award. I, I will admit that realizing that Nate is my age, um, I did feel a little bit uh, a little bit uncomfortable. I was like, oh, wow, someone who's this accomplished in my age, I've been, I've been slacking. But then I was relieved to learn he's actually three months older than me, so I'm, I still have some time to catch up. Um, Nate, Nate, Nate really does need, need no introduction. Um, uh, you have uh, no doubt, I'm sure, read his articles. Uh, I, there's, uh, there's very few, um, I think, actually, really, probably any journalist other than Nate, who whenever I hear there's a new Nate Cohn article, um, I immediately drop everything, and I know I have to read it. Um, he manages to continue to have some of the most valuable um, and I think an important uh, commentary um, on uh, American politics. I think when I think of data journalism, when I think of polling, um, he, is, he is the first name that, uh, name that comes to mind. Um, and uh, I'm sure you've also seen him not only with the New York Times, but he's also, as I'm sure he'll talk about today, um, helps run what has been rated the most accurate poll, um, the New York Times Siena College Upshot Poll. Um, and uh, that is no uh, easy feat. Uh, we are in a time when polling is increasingly difficult, but it's also increasingly important um, as uh, there's increasing uh, uh, division around what even um, Americans want from government, um, where they stand on major issues. Um, I think having accurate public opinion, pol- public opinion data has never uh, been more important. It's something that's always been really important at Berkeley, um, and there's no one, I think, pushing that uh, forward uh, uh, in, a, in a more important way uh, than our awardee. So with that, I will turn it over to uh, Nate Cohn. And uh, Nate will be uh, speaking for about 40 minutes, then we'll do Q&A, and then we'll give him the award officially. Uh, and then please stick around because we will then have a reception. So if you don't get your question answered uh, during the Q&A, you can try to buttonhole Nate, get a photo, um, get, a, you know, get him to sign your hat, whatever, whatever it is you want. So great. Okay. With that, um, I'll turn it over to Nate. Thank you so much. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Nate, as David just mentioned. I'm uh, the chief political analyst at the New York Times. I'm responsible for our survey methodology, our election night projections, and I also 
uh, write with some regularity, including for a newsletter called The Tilt, which you're welcome to subscribe to. Uh, it's always uh, a pleasure to get to speak with people in the real world, um, but it is also a, it's a, it's a, it's a real honor to, to be here today to receive this award. I want to thank uh, Jack Citrin and the Citrin Center, David, for putting everything uh, together for this. And I also want to thank the New York Times and Siena College, as David just alluded to. Um, I think I'm, I'm reasonably confident that I am here by the margin of the success of the Times-Siena poll um, I do think it set the standard for rigor and transparency in public polling, and it's really only possible because of the support of the New York Times, and there have been a lot of opportunities for the New York Times to stop supporting public polling, whether it's due to challenges in the industry, um, whether it's due to troubling economic times, um, or due to questions about its continued accuracy. Oh. <laughs> um, and I'm certain that it wouldn't be possible at another organization that didn't have the resources or the commitment um, to, I don't know if I was responsible for this or not, but if so, I'm sorry, um, that didn't have the resources or the commitment to this kind of work. And I also want to thank Siena College for being uh, an incredible partner in being willing to go along with crazy ideas, including things that are not fun for them. Um, when we take steps that make their life more difficult, we... Um, you know, call more people who are less likely to respond to polls. And as a consequence, their interviewers have to call for two hours before they reach even a single respondent. And they put up with that. Um, I also, well, what, what do we think? <laughs> um, all right, I'll, I'll skip ahead to a little anecdote here. Um, you know, beyond the New York Times and Siena College, I do think there's a third reason why uh, the Times-Siena poll has been successful, at least with respect to the competition. This is a little bit of a hot take. Um, and it might seem a little insulting, but I do think we care more about getting accurate political survey results than much of the competition. I know that I don't mean to say that much of the competition doesn't care about getting accurate political survey results, but it's not their highest priority. There are other things that they value more. Um, I was at Cornell earlier this year um, at a conference on a NSF-funded study of new innovative methods in polling. And panelist after panelist complained that they were there to talk about polling elections, every single one of them. It was incredible. They were just like, you know what would really be great is if we could get all of this money to pull anything else. And I was really astonished. Um, but I think they really believe it. I think that it's not just complaining um, that sometimes they look wrong or that they get attacked or that the news media doesn't want them to do. I don't think that they really consider um, doing a good job in political election polling to be their highest calling, to use um, one of their words for it. And I think that the, the clearest proof of that isn't simply... Um, their words, but also their, their actions. You know, there are small things like the order of questions. Um, is the first question in your survey about American, about Biden versus Trump, or are you going to ask about a bunch of other questions first that you might think is more important, but has the potential to bias your result about Biden or Trump? Many other surveys put other questions first. Um, there are larger methodological choices, like should you design a poll that represents the whole American population, which includes many non-voters and even people who are ineligible to vote, or do you focus on likely voters? Many pollsters focus on adults, 
that may not be the way to generate the best and most accurate results when it comes to elections. And I think the very best proof of all, though, is that many public pollsters don't even pull the horse race at all anymore. And, you know, I know that you won't... Oh, we're really way off in our order here. Um, I know that you won't be able to read all of these words, but both Gallup and the Pew Research Center, two of the most prominent organizations in public opinion research, no longer release presidential results pitting the two major party candidates against each other. Um, That's, to me pretty good proof that they really don't value this stuff as much as you might think. Uh, Monmouth University, this maybe you can read from the back, the pollster who wants to quit horse race polling and actually did. Um, And I think the use of the word horse race says it all. It's a sporting event. It's ephemeral. It's devoid of any meaning. Uh, It only matters to horse junkies, I guess. Horse race fans, as Eton Hirsch might put it, horse hobbyists. You know, I I think that it's... um, pretty clearly a diminishing way to describe the effort. And, and I don't agree with it. And before we talk about the state of polls, I think it's worth talking about the importance of accurate and representative election polling, um, not just to feed the appetites of political junkies, but because of the effect it ultimately has on the functioning of our democracy. And by failing to take it seriously, um, we have a political process that can be less representative and less responsive to the electorate um, with potentially serious consequences for the way our country Um, is going right now. Um, What I just said I don't think is necessarily the view of most pollsters, as I just mentioned. The the Gallup and Pew position is rooted in a deeply held view of the role of public opinion in our democracy. And the view goes all the way back to the dawn of modern social science. It goes back to 19th century progressives. And it holds that the will of the people should be this like guiding light that our elected officials should follow. And the consequence of that um, is that there's a quasi-religious commitment to trying to learn what the public wants in hope that politicians will do exactly that, to add the, the voice of the people um, to political conversations. Um, and this is sort of their calling, as they, they would put it. Um, and it's, 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 I, I won't stay philosophical for too long before I, I get to you know, the nitty-gritty of polling, but it's worth contrasting this with, with other ways of looking at our democracy. There's a Republican vision, a more elitist vision, that's lowercase r Republican, by the way, um, that holds that people elect their representatives, and the representatives should do what's in the public interest, but not necessarily what is in line with public opinion. And if you take that view, then you're like George W. Bush, and you say, oh, I don't follow the polls, I just do what's right, you know. Um, and Regardless of whether you follow the progressive or Republican view, there's not much room for accurate political polling. At best, it's a distraction from measuring the true thing that matters, which is the American people's attitudes on the issues. Um, And at at best, I guess, it pays the bills, like so that they can end up uh, getting grants from the NSF for that conference I alluded to at at Cornell. Um, But, you know, I think that while that may be all true in principle, that our democracy works in a pretty different way, um, our politicians don't just naively follow um, what they believe is best for the country, and they don't naively follow the public will either. Instead, there's this other big thing that affects what they do, and that's electoral competition. Um, In order to exercise power, they have to win it. In our democracy, they do it through winning elections. And the decision-making of all political actors in our country is powerfully shaped by who will win or lose elections. And, you know, they decide who to support and what policies support in no small part based on what they think will help them win or lose an election. And polling has come to play a really important role in that process. Um, I want to note, by the way, it's not polling's fault that 
politicians are calculating. Um, I was reading a book recently from eight, about the 1860 election, and it turns out that Lincoln was the electability candidate. Uh, they thought that he was the Midwestern moderate who could win Pennsylvania. It sounds very familiar. And that's even at a time when civil war was at stake, when slavery was at stake. Um, of all the times in American history, we're going with what was righteous and morally right. That would be it. And yet the Republican Party nominated um, the relative moderate in hopes of winning the election. And even though there was no polling to sort of inform them. And I think it's worth pondering the stakes of that kind of decision. I mean, imagine uh, if that was wrong. What if hypothetically, they could have elected an abolitionist as the president in 1860, and people could have been freed years earlier. It's an incredibly high-stakes decision. And conversely, what if they had believed an abolitionist could have won and they have lost, and slavery would have lasted longer? I mean, these are really important decisions that are being made based on calculations about what can and can't be done. And today, polling is, I don't know how to rate it among all the different ways that politicians make choices about what can or can't be done politically, but it's definitely on the list. And the stakes today, I, I think it's fair to say, are smaller than slavery, but they, they are still quite, quite real. And you know, in recent decades, I fear that many of these calculations, these political choices, have been made based on bad polling and bad data. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that we have a crisis of polling at the same time we have a crisis of democracy. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that Trump mobilized a so-called silent majority of voters who felt that they were unrepresented in our political system and who turned out to be up underrepresented in polls by an order of magnitude for decades. I mean, just think about all of the choices that politicians made from the 80s onward, that in each one of those decisions, they were doing it in part based on data that underrepresented the number of white working class Americans by tens of millions. I think it added up. Um, and, you know, I think I'll, I'll start by sort of proving that to you. And I think it offers a nice launching point for where polling is today. Because, you know, although it's tempting to think the problems in polling, you know, are, are recent to Trump, I think it's probably fair to say that Trump exposed issues in polling that had existed for a very long time before that. Um, and we could probably start in like 1980 or something. But for concision, I'm going to start in 2012. And it's, it's, it's a little hard to remember today. Um, but the Obama re-election was heralded as marking the arrival of a new coalition of young, diverse, and highly educated voters who were creating this emerging Democratic majority. Um, and it was a Democratic majority that was anchored in demographic changes. The country was, not, not, was much more diverse, much more highly educated than it used to be, and there was a new generation of young people. And polling was at the center of the construction of this narrative. The exit polls in that election found that Obama won 39% of white voters, which was the lowest since Walter Mondale in 1984. Um, from the Republican point of view, that proved um, that they had done all that they could realistically do among white voters and that um, they faced political peril. Um, instead, they had lost the election because of demographic forces. Latino voters rose to be 10% of the electorate. Romney won just 27% of Hispanic voters. And I think that the consequence of this story was really immense because it suggested that the GOP had no choice but to appeal to diverse, um, young, and highly educated cohorts. Um, and I really do think it's difficult to overstate how much this affected Republicans. These are two stories from November 9th, 2012. On the left, this is a New York Times article. I know some of you are far away, but it reads, the prospects for immigration reform overhaul next year improved with stunning speed uh, as 
you know, after a presidential election in which Latino voters rewarded President Obama while punishing Republicans. On the right, Sean Hannity embraces immigration reform. He declared that he had evolved on the issue. Um, and this is all because of the sense of crisis that Republicans felt um, due to Obama's re-election victory. And not just that he won, but the way that they believed he had won it, based on surveys. Um, the catch, of course, is that this, this story was, was basically wrong. Um, you know, and this is, on the left, this is what the exit polls that were used to construct the narrative I just described supposed for the makeup of the 2012 electorate. And on the right is what the census showed eight months later. And as you can see, the exit polls showed that there were fewer white voters, um, fewer people without a college degree, fewer people over age 45, um, than it turns out there were in reality. And by an order of magnitude, I mean, when we're talking about, again, I, I mentioned tens of millions of people, but on that college share of the electorate, that's a 10 percentage point difference. And, you know, if you do some quick math here, like 130 million people voted in the 2012 election, like that's 13 million people without college degrees that are uh, somehow being missed by um, a gold standard survey that was the basis of almost all of the political analysis in the aftermath of the 2012 election. And the consequences of that are, again, they're just quite, they're quite striking. Because if you go and try and understand the 2012 election with these numbers, instead of the numbers we had after the election, you get a totally different picture. It turns out that Obama would have won in 2012, even if Republicans had won 40% of the Hispanic vote, which is what they sort of hoped for. It turns out that Obama would have won even if white voters had represented the same share of the electorate they had in 2004. He would have won even if both turnout and the demographics were all the same as they were in 2004. And as you can probably piece together out of all of this, what that actually means is that the reason Obama won the election is because he actually did pretty well among white people and much better among white people than John Kerry did. Um, now, granted, there are, you know, in order to win an election, you need voters from all demographic groups. I don't mean to say that, you know, uh, young people or college-educated people or white working-class voters or any given demographic group was not central to his victory. What I mean to say, though, is that even if the Republicans achieved all of the things that they hoped to do among the groups that they thought cost them the election, they still would have lost because of the group they thought they had in the bag. Um, it's worth pausing to ask ourselves how much all I just said mattered. I mean, I think I've demonstrated to you um, with some satisfaction that the exit polls were wrong, and that the narrative created by the exit polls probably promoted um, a certain approach by Republicans in the days after the election. Uh, Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, all of these people embraced comprehensive immigration reform. Sean Hannity did for a minute. Um, and look, I, it's worth imagining what would have happened if it had been the other way. I mean, would the Republican Party have raced to support comprehensive immigration reform? I don't know. Would Obama have raised support comprehensive immigration reform, gun re legislation, climate legislation, the TPP, if he believed that there were tens of millions of more white working class voters than, there, than they were, and that it was white working class voters in the Midwest who provided him with the decisive margin in the states that um, ultimately put him over the top in the Electoral College? Maybe. I don't, I don't know. I mean, what I do know, though, for sure, is that four years later, Trump won the Republican nomination Champion, uh, championing opposition to immigration reform and free trade against Republican candidates who had just endorsed immigration reform by their account in no small part because of their interpretation of polling data. I know that he won the presidency by making gains among 
a group of voters who are mostly colored in blue here, white working class northerners who um, voted for Obama, I think we can say in retrospect, because of his economic policies, that they opposed Mitt Romney's um, you know, willingness to cut the social safety net, that you may remember all the attacks on Mitt Romney over Bain Capital. You may remember that Romney would support outsourcing. You may remember um, that Romney supported tax cuts, all of these things that allowed Obama to paint Mitt Romney as a rapacious plutocrat. And before the election, it was generally understood that that was the reason why Obama would win the election until the exit poll showed something very different. Um, and I also know that the polling in 2016 failed to represent these voters yet again. They systematically underestimated the voters without a college education in that election as well. And that's the major reason, maybe not the only reason, but a major reason why the polls showed Hillary Clinton with a considerable lead. Um, I've, I don't know if I've used the, I think I just used the term waiting by education. This is a little bit arcane, but it, it basically just means making sure your poll has the right number of people without a college degree in its overall result, regardless of how many white working class voters you may have actually reached. And up until 2016, most polls did not make sure that they had the right number of voters uh, without a college degree. That was true for the exit polls that you saw earlier. Those exit polls did nothing to make sure that they had the right number of voters without a college degree. They actually use these kind of fun tricks where they, the, the interviewer will use their eyes to be like, oh, I think you are a black person, or oh, I think you're a young person. And then after the fact, they're like, well, the interviewer thought 50 people who voted here were black, but we only have 45 respondents who said they were black. Therefore, we need to give more weight to the people who are actually black to match the visual characteristics of the respondents. That's actually what they do. And as you can imagine, they can't do that for education. I mean, doing the race and age like that's like, it's a little sketchy, but education you definitely can't do. Um, and so they had no ability to ensure um, that they were properly representing the voters who just a few years later would form the basis of Trump's support. Um, and for, this was probably true, well, it was certainly true for years. For years, pollsters were not representing um, voters without a degree. It's just that in 2016, it started to matter a lot more. That's the chart that you see on the right, and it shows, and although I've lost the y-axis here, unfortunately, that's my fault, um, it shows the, uh, the, how much it mattered whether a poll made sure they had the right number of less educated respondents. In 2012, didn't make any difference. Obama did just as well among voters with or without a college degree. So there's no consequence to whether the poll properly represented them. In 2016, however, the gap between college-educated and non-college-educated voters had grown so big that if polls didn't do anything about it, they would now underestimate Republicans by four percentage points, which if I had the y-axis is what you would see there. So that's, that's, that's basically what goes wrong in 2016. But I would argue not, it may show up for the first time in 2016, but it was happening in substantive ways to our politics for years before that. And I think the 2012 election exit poll is one example. But again, I mean, who knows how many other times decisions were made by the margin of whether this group of voters was properly represented in a political survey or not. Um, this is also the world that the Times-Siena poll sort of enters. Um, haven't really talked much about what most pre-election polls were doing around this time. The main thing I guess I would tell you is that from my point of view, they were sort of fundamentally sound, but they failed in three specific ways. They failed to represent less educated and less engaged voters, this being one example, but it's not just that. Low turnout voters are also really unlikely to take a survey. That makes sense. You can imagine someone really excited to take a survey if they're a political junkie, but if you don't even care about politics, what are you doing taking this 30-question survey? Um, it 
I also felt that they weren't taking advantage of the best data that was available on um, the makeup of the electorate. I just gave you one example of how many people were relying on data that may not have been the best um, that you could use to try and figure out the makeup of the electorate to make sure polls are representative. But it's not the only source of data on that. Another source of data that uh, pollsters in um, the world of partisan politics use is called the voter file. And the voter file um, is the basis for most partisan polling, but not public polling. And it contains data like this on every voter. This is a little sample of me. This is my voter file, a snippet of my voter file data. And um, well, it shows you my name. It sh I, here's, I took out my address, but I gave you my lat long if you want to see where I live. <laughs> you can see that in Washington, D.C., my precinct voted 93 to 5 for Biden. Uh, that white people are 81% of my, pre my, my census tract. Sorry. 93% of people in my census tract have a college degree. Um, it doesn't know my race, even though it knows I'm Jewish for some reason. That seems fixable. Um, it, although maybe they're making a political statement there, actually. Um, it estimates the value of my home at about, of our apartment uh, at about $700,000, which should be pretty good. Like, this is the same data you can get from Trulia, right? You all can figure out the estimate of your place. They can use that same data to match up with my address. Um, it doesn't know if I'm married. I, I am now married. Um, partisan description is other. I'm, an, I'm registered as an independent. You'll also know I have not voted um, in any of the elections that you see on the left that are zeros. I didn't vote in either 2020 or 2022, journalistic integrity. Um, and you can also see that here we have our own estimates that I have an 86% chance in my own view of supporting Joe Biden in 2020. It's about the same as the chance that we gave a uh, Hillary Clinton of winning in 2016, so it's just enough to keep things interesting, I guess. Um, and we give, I, I'm giving myself a 23% chance of voting in, in 2024 as well. I think that's basically about right. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't done it, but, I, you know, I could change my mind. So anyway, this is a rich data set that we basically have on every American who's registered to vote. And the way this works is that when you register to vote and you fill out that form, it goes to your state, state compiles it, um, and then commercial vendors buy it from each of the states. They append all of this extra information to it. And then we get to use it for polling. Because although I blanked it out, your telephone number is on here too. If you provided it on your voter registration form, I got your phone number. If, a commercial if you didn't put your phone number on there, then a commercial vendor can go and get a list of you know, all, all of people's telephone numbers and names and then match it up and say, oh, Nate, Nate Cohn, we have him over here as having this telephone number, so that must be the same one, same zip code, same name, and so on. Um, I think this worked pretty well for a time. You know, we mentioned that we have a good track record of accuracy, at least got us through a couple of elections. Um, in 2016, we actually did better than a lot of people by making use of this data. Just as one example, our, we were one of a very small number of pollsters that showed Trump winning anywhere, had Trump winning in Florida by four, which is actually more than he won by. And as I mentioned the highlighting, uh, the reason that we showed Trump ahead was because we were able to make sure we had the right number of registered Republicans in our poll, not rocket science, but because, as, as you just saw, you knew my party registration, we know how many Republicans, independents, and Democrats there are in every state. Therefore, we can make sure our polls have the right number of each, and that happens to be pretty good for ma you know, making sure you have a representative sample um, in terms of partisanship. Um, 
should also note that although this was pretty good in 2016, it looked even better in our post-election analysis. You know, this is the first time we did polls like this. And so we learned a lot. And when we did it after 2016, we were like, wow, we can be pretty good at this, actually. We might have nailed this thing with the benefit of hindsight. And so unlike most polling organizations, we went big and we did 100 polls in 2018, which were great. Um, earned that A-plus rating from 538. And then in 2020, unfortunately, we were just as bad as everyone else. Um, this shows that we, on average, were off by five and a half percentage points. That's not good. That's about as well as you could do with no polling at all, honestly, just given how correlated states are from one election to the next. And honestly, I, don't, I think this sells short how badly we did because it isn't simply that our polls were off. They were also biased, which means that in the aggregate, they were skewed towards one side. On average in 2020, this isn't just our polls. This is all polls in the era of the modern poll average. On average, polls underestimated Donald Trump by 4.7% in 2020. That is a huge amount. That's the difference between whether the race seems close or not. And we were just as bad as this, even though I'm only, even though I'm showing you all pollsters, not just ourselves. And as if that's bad enough, no one knows why. This is a quote from uh, the, the, the post-election report of APOR, which is the big polling consortium out there. And I'll read what it says in highlighting. Identifying why polls overstated the Democratic margin appears impossible. So that's, um, that's pretty bad, you know, off by, uh, by five points and figuring out why is impossible in their view. Um, there are many hypotheses for why the polls were wrong, of course. Um, and the core hypothesis is something called non-response bias. And that's the idea that the people who took the poll we're just more likely to support Trump than people who didn't take the poll, controlling for all the things you used in the design of your survey. So yes, you had the right number of Democrats who were college educated, who looked just like me on my spreadsheet over there, but the people who took your poll were just more for Biden than people who looked exactly like the people who didn't take the poll. The convenient thing about that explanation, of course, is that it's entirely non-falsifiable. By and it's, it, or to flip it around, to be a little bit more positive about it, it's a diagnosis of exclusion, to use a medical term. Once you have ruled out every other possible diagnosis, it has to be that one. That's not true, strictly speaking. Uh, we don't understand polling as well as I hope doctors understand medicine. But the logic is the same. And there were a lot of different debates about the mechanism for why there was non-response bias, why Biden voters were likelier to support um, Sorry, why Democrats were likelier to participate in surveys than demographically similar people who did not. One of them was that social trust was lower among Trump supporters. Another was COVID. All the liberals stayed home. And so they were there to take political polls while Republicans were out living their lives. Um, another possibility was the horrible coverage of Donald Trump that just like, if you're, you might be, you're a Trump voter, but you're, you know, he's, he's in the hospital with COVID and he's doing whatever he did in that debate, and so you're just not taking polls anymore. Um, another possibility is that we have this all flipped around the other way, and it's actually the liberals who are super excited to take polls because they hate Trump, they're energized by the Black Lives Matter movement, they're part of the resistance, they're flying to D.C. for their marches, and consequently, they're, they're surging to take the polls, not the other way around. What's relevant is that there's no evidence brought by the polling community to distinguish between any of those theories, at least in public. There are partisan 
outlets, particular uh, who not outlets, partisan firms and organizations who have done research in this area behind closed doors, but they're not available um, to you and me. Um, and um, you know, depending on which of those theories you accept, the prospect for polling going forward is very different. If it's COVID, we're fine. COVID's gone, or at least gone enough for uh, this non-response bias to be significantly attenuated. Um, if it's liberal exuberance in 2020, I think that's faded a lot too. I think Democrats have, you know, fallen back into a somewhat somber, you know, mood about the state of the world. I don't think they're 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 not contributing to candidates the way they used to be, and so on. Coverage of Trump is also gone, and not not, not gone, but it's not 24/7 Trump, 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 like it was in 2020. To the extent that's a factor, it's faded. Um, if it is specific to the characteristics of the people who backed Trump, like they're low in social trust and they simply won't talk to telephone pollsters anymore, that one, that one we couldn't do very much about and we would expect it to continue in the future. So depending on your theory for why the polls are wrong in 2020, um, you have a very different take on what the prospects are for polling going forward. What I will say is that I do think that there is evidence that at least something in this non-response field is probably the right answer. This is a chart that we published after uh, the election, and it showed that Democratic primary voters became more likely to respond to political surveys. In 2020, it stayed high. That doesn't mean that non-response bias is a factor, but we at least know that Democrats did become likelier to respond to political surveys. And so, again, doesn't prove it, but it's correlated with the type of a, it's, it's the sort of pattern we would expect if the theory is right, even if the theory is not proven by it. Um, here at the Times, we've tried to do what we can to try and understand who doesn't respond to political surveys. In 2022, we fielded an experiment in Wisconsin where we sent mail to thousands of registered voters, and the mail contained a return envelope. It contained a paper questionnaire. It contained $5, which you can see partly depicted. And it contained a letter telling the respondent that if you reply to this survey, we'll pay you 20 bucks. At the same time, we fielded a normal phone survey and a couple of other experimental survey designs that we have never used before. And I don't know that we're likely to use since, but they were, they were also in play. Um, in the end, this survey received a 27% response rate, while our normal survey in Wisconsin got a 1.5% response rate. So we're clearly tapping into a different population by paying people. Um, and we did find some important differences between the people who took our survey when we paid them versus those who took it on the phone. And it's worth cautioning that not all of these differences can be attributed to the higher response rate. It's possible they're attributed to some people taking it on the phone versus people taking it online and so on. There are, it's not a perfect experiment when we're using um, different modes and different methods, but I think that it's nonetheless instructive. And some of them correspond with pre-existing theories of why um, non-response bias exists. So I know that you can't all read, but the left-hand side is how the voters are most different between the two kinds of surveys. And the biggest difference is almost never answers calls on a personal phone from non-recognized numbers, so that's kind of boring. The second biggest difference, though, is interesting. It identifies as a political moderate. Ipsos male, 42% moderate. The Siena Times phone poll, 30% moderate, a 12 percentage point difference. And that really lines up to me with what we would expect. The sort of people who don't take, who aren't interested enough to take a political survey on the phone for no incentive are likelier to be political junkies 
hobbyists or fans, whatever you'd like to use, um, while the people who can be persuaded to pay for to, who can be paid to take a survey, they're not political junkies. They're more likely to be moderate and not invested in American politics. Uh, the third one is also interesting. Uses signs outside the home to deter strangers, such as no trespassing. 31% of people in the mail survey said that they either had a no trespassing sign or considered it, compared to 20% on the phone. That also makes sense to me. I mean, these are people who aren't, let's call them socially engaged. They may not have different answers on questions like social trust, as we'll see in a second, but they don't like talking to people. And it actually comes up a lot. Um, there are questions on here like, you know, prefers a job behind a computer as opposed to a job talking with other people. And maybe it goes without saying, but these questions were designed to test the various theories for why maybe people wouldn't respond to political surveys. Um, the major, the major, the areas where they were similar, though, are also pretty striking. Um, contrary to what you might think, both groups were equally likely to trust the media. So I, you know, I've always thought it was a distinct possibility. People don't want to take our polls because, you know, they hear about polls all the time in the media, and that didn't seem to be a major difference between the two. No difference on thinks most people can be trusted. In fact, people were more trusting on the mail. They'll all note that maybe they were feeling trusting after they got five bucks from a stranger. Um, volunteered to work for an organization, also about the same. Um, and although I don't have it on here, the results on the political ballot questions, like the Senate race and the governor's race in Wisconsin, were virtually identical in both of the two tests. They were not necessarily the same on support for Trump. The male poll did get a higher level of support for Trump, even though the level of support for Biden was about the same on both. So it is possible that there is uh, that this group of less engaged, we'll call them antisocial, um, although I personally would not be inclined to take a call from an unknown number, I wouldn't have a no trespassing sign. So I don't know where we want to like draw these lines, but we'll call them antisocial voters who don't want to participate um, in political surveys, um, are more, they're less politically engaged. And they like Trump more than people who look a lot like them otherwise, the sort of person next door, demographically identical, without the no trespassing sign. That, I think, is a plausible theory here. Now, it doesn't necessarily give us very much actionable information. I don't, you know, in, in the basic model of polling, um, what you hope to do is if you see that there's some dimension on which your survey could be biased, you want to know the truth, and then you want to adjust your survey to match the truth. And we don't know the truth for a lot of this stuff. We don't know... What proportion of people have a no trespassing sign nationwide to adjust our surveys on this subsequently? I don't know how we could do that unless there's anyone here who wants to get on the Google Street View API and figure that out for us. It's something I've been curious about whether we might try. Um, and that's true for a lot of the questions that we ask. So this is more diagnostic, to again return to our medical um, analogy, than it offers any clear prescription for what we can do about polling going forward. Um, one thing that makes this harder is that despite these differences that we saw in 2022, sorry, despite the differences that we saw in this experiment, our polls were pretty similar. I'm sorry, our polls were very good. Um, in 2022, our polls were dead on, um, best of class, and it was associated um, with a decline in apparent Democratic response rates with respect to Republicans. So this is the ratio of Democratic response rate to Republican response rate. So a number over one indicates that Democrats are responding at higher rates than Republicans. And this is only among white voters because 
Black and Latino voters and Asian voters as well tend to respond at lower rates and tend to be more democratic. So when you look at the whole population, the aggregate, the response rate among Democrats and Republicans is pretty equal. But that's mostly because non-white voters uh, tend to be less likely to respond, while white Democrats are likely to respond than white Republicans and cancel it out. And among, if you, so that I'm sort of basically creating an artificial control for you by filtering down to white people. And what it shows here is that in 2020, white Democrats were 27% likelier to respond um, than white Republicans. And in 2019 and 2022, that number was a more reasonable 6 and 8%. And it's possible that 6 and 8% can be attributed to socioeconomic factors like higher educational attainment, the sort of things that we would deal with in due course, as opposed to something um, that would systematically um, bias our polls going forward. Um, going forward, I don't think there's anything that we can do, at least at, sorry, I don't think there's anything that I know how to do that guarantees there won't be another polling misfire in 2024 like there was in 2020. I do think that some of the data that I introduced here offers some reason to think the risks of that have declined. Um, but there's no guarantee. Um, I am continuing to monitor the bar chart you're looking at here. I don't know that an increase in Democratic response rates among white people would be some siren that proves that we're about to have another polling misfire, but I think it's a plausible indicator that we can look at. Um, and at the moment, I'm not even sure it's the biggest problem that we face in polling right now. At the very least, I don't think it was the biggest problem that we faced in 2022. In, in 2022, I think I might posit the biggest problem that we had with, was with understanding why voters would do what they would do, not what they would do. Um, as you could see in this prior one, our polls were awfully accurate, but I'm not sure we told the story of the election quite right. Here's what I wrote after the election. I wrote that the Democrats seem to do too well because of two unusual issues, democracy and abortion. And we looked district by district and found that MAGA Republicans fared systematically worse than Republicans who were not from MAGA districts. And here's what I wrote before the election. I said the spotlight on those matters, those matters being democracy and abortion, is fading. Voters are less frequently citing them as top concerns while expressing worries about the economy, crime, and immigration issues that tend to favor Republicans. And these are all the poll questions that we tried to ask that we hoped would lend insight into why voters were doing what we were doing. One is we asked them what they thought the most important issue facing the country was, issues like the economy and inflation trumped abortion. We asked them what kinds of issues mattered more to their vote. Here again, they said the economy was more important than those social issues that we sort of believe was a really important factor in determining the outcome of the election. And we also asked them what kind of candidate they would rather vote for. And most, can, most voters said they just didn't really care that much whether a Republican candidate thought Trump won the election or they actually preferred a candidate who thought Trump won the election. So the poll questions that we were asking before the election I don't think did a very good job of telling the story of what would happen in the election even though our results were pretty good. To me, that's a pretty serious problem. And, you know, I think that if we could get this on the same scale as poll error in 2020 or 2016, I'd kind of put this as an error just as big as that, if we could scale them the same way. Um, and this is another area where I, I, I think that we continue to have a lot of work. Um, heading into 2024, um, the stakes for all of these issues feel as high as ever. These are to, this is today's poll average as I calculated it uh, this morning. Not 100% sure that I would take this to the bank, but it's in the ballpark. And um, it's a close race nationwide. Trump actually leads at the moment. Um, in the battleground states, everything is extremely close. If you had to suppose that these numbers would be the exact election result, and if you've gotten something out of this 
presentation, I hope it's that you should not expect that. But if you did suppose that, Donald Trump would narrowly win by the margin of Pennsylvania, where he has a one-point lead. And our polling suggests that the reason for this is because Biden is struggling among less engaged, young, black, and Hispanic voters. And this is, again, probably beyond the ability of many of you to see. But here I'm breaking down the results of our surveys over the last year by whether respondents voted in 2022 or not. And it shows that Biden leads among people who voted in 2022, 47-43 in our national polling. He trails among people who didn't vote in 2022, 41-39. And that's true even though the people who didn't vote in 2022 are disproportionately young, black, and Latino. It just turns out, according to our polling, that the black, Latino, and young voters who didn't vote in 2022 are very dissatisfied with Joe Biden at the moment. You can see that um, among black voters, Biden has an 81 to 8 lead among those who voted in 2022, while among those who didn't vote, Biden's only up 62 to 14, which is, for a Democrat among black voters, a, a very weak showing. Same pattern exists among Hispanic and young voters. It's also true among Republican constituencies as well, the white working class voters who stayed home in 2022, according to our data, are very conservative. Um, And as I mentioned in the context of immigration reform, these kind of findings will wind up playing a role in the democratic process right now. Just last month, I wrote that there are consistent signs of erosion in black and Hispanic support for Biden. Um, And it was watched by the White House, and they will be acting on this kind of information. I'm not the only person who's telling them this. They have their own polling that shows them, of course, that Biden is faring worse among black, Hispanic, and young voters than prior Democrats. But it matters that this stuff is in in the public as well. You can imagine that the Democratic coalition consists of all kinds of stakeholders who believe all kinds of things, and they'll want the president to talk about their thing in... um, his re-election campaign. And the availability of this data may help explain to them why maybe they'll be talking about something else. That's not what they want. Um, that's especially true on, on, on something like um, appealing to minority um, voting groups. You know, you can imagine that all kinds of people on the internet might be like, oh, why are you, you know, talking about Black Lives Matter? Isn't it true that you're just going to alienate more white people that way? And the availability of this data would, you know, makes it easier for the rest of the world to understand the kind of political calculus that Joe Biden will probably be undertaking. Um, and all of that, of course, is separate from the really important question, which is whether that calculation is being informed by accurate information. If it is not true that Biden is faring worse among non-white voters, as I've just sort of suggested here, imagine the consequences. Now Biden might be saying exactly the wrong thing. Um, in his pursuit of re-election. And so in the end, you know, whether voters are given the messages to, you know, lead them to support a politician will come down to uh, the kind of information that um, politicians and political activists and campaigners have to make decisions. Um, And ultimately, the the health of the democracy will rest on whether those calculations make sense or not. Um, I don't think I have a timer up here, so I'm hoping that I'm in the ballpark, but yeah, okay. I got a thumbs up, so that's that. That's it. Okay. Sorry, I almost lost my voice there a couple of times. Thank you for the water, whoever provided this in advance. Yeah, okay. Oh, I missed what that was all about. I saw a person coming. I was like, oh, you're kind of closer than I would have guessed you would be.
has be, oh, sorry. Um, what would you say to people that believe that polling has essentially become the opposite of a self-fulfilling prophecy? Um, I remember in the 2016 election, because there was a lot of polls coming out saying that Hillary Clinton was almost guaranteed to win, that Democratic voters became complacent and therefore didn't come out. So that, I think there are three that are embedded in that. There's, embedded in that question, there are th several assumptions, and I'm not. some of them I'm sympathetic to and some I'm not. So in 2016, you know, I don't think that turnout among Democrats was, was low. I don't think that's like the reason she lost that election. I'm also not convinced it's because the polls didn't show the race being close. I mean, you know, I just showed you a poll that we had that showed Trump up, but other polls still showed the race pretty close, um, even if they showed Clinton ahead. I think the main reason that people didn't think Trump could win was not just because, you know, sort of talking heads and pundits said he couldn't win, but because many people didn't believe he could, he could win because he was not someone who many people could imagine as, as winning a presidential election. This was a reality TV star who said crazy things, who was constantly being attacked and not, and didn't fit their archetype for who, what they thought they could win. Uh, to, now that I've talked about those specific things in terms of the actual like thrust of your question, you know, I think that if there are people who make political decisions about whether to vote based on a narrow difference in the polls, you know, I'm not sure that that person is, is the sort of person who can like, be assured to be voting otherwise. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not sure I'm convinced by the counterfactual that in a world without polling, that that sort of person really is staying home. And also know that I think the research on this is like pretty mixed and that intuitively makes sense. Like one thing that I was noting to someone I was speaking to earlier is before the election, Donald Trump was complaining that the polls showing him behind were intending to suppress the enthusiasm of his voters. And then after the election, you know, Hillary Clinton argued that the fact that she was in the lead was the reason that people stayed home. I have no idea which of those theories are right. I'll be, I'll be honest. I do think it's entirely possible that people's belief about whether a candidate is likely to win affects at the margins a small number of quite informed people's decisions about whether they'll turn out. I'm inclined to think that most of those highly informed people are, are regular voters. And I'm also inclined to think that a lot of those people would still think mostly the same thing. I don't, I don't know that I, I, I agree that like there are many races that people think would be competitive, but because of the polls, they're like, oh, I just saw, you know, the Times CBS poll showed Clinton up for not a race, going to stay home. I, I, you know, I'm not saying there's nothing to it. I just think it's unlikely. Yeah, um, inflation, it's a novelty to young people. It's a big shock. It's also a novelty to a lot of the political data that's been collected since 1980. So that issue is killing Biden, but isn't the fact that rents have gone up around the country, isn't that hurting Biden, you know, among young people? I mean, I mean are your surveys starting to see the cost of housing being mentioned by people at all? We don't distinguish in, in the way that our surveys are being coded between the cost of living and housing. Um, so I can't, be, I can't say it's one or the other or the relative contribution of the rising costs of gas or food versus um, rental costs versus interest rates or anything else. But I think it's definitely fair to say that in the aggregate, the rising cost of living is hurting Biden and that um, housing prices are undoubtedly a major part of it. You can, you can, you, yeah. Yeah. Would you care to comment on the interaction between this uh, electoral college and polling and, and how, because normally when you hear about polling, it's about the yeah. general electorate. So and most, obviously what matters is the electoral college. So most of the, of the like 
you know, the most serious public polling firms almost exclusively focus on national surveys. And that does partly go to what I said at the beginning, that they think that their highest calling is to give voice to the nation and the people in the democratic process. Um, what, I mean, to be blunt, like, why does it matter whether people in Pennsylvania think X about an issue? You can, you can see why in their framework for the way polling matters that a single state poll isn't especially important. For us, state polling has been our overwhelming priority. We've done far more state and district polling. It's far more state and district polls than national polls. It's partly because it's like our value add and our opportunity. There are tons of national polls and very few state polls, as you just mentioned. So it's a place where we can make an additional contribution. But it's also because, as you've alluded to, many of our political outcomes are decided by states in the Electoral College, critical battleground states in the Senate, battleground House districts. Um, most of the time, the nation and the states and the battleground states look fundamentally similar. I mean, even in 2020, when the battleground states were like Biden plus one and the nation was Biden plus four, there are a lot of different purposes for which like that Biden plus one versus Biden plus five difference like isn't that much, right? You know, it's a few points. Obviously, that's everything when it comes down to the actual outcome of a presidential election. So for our purposes, we focus, you know, overwhelmingly on those states, but there are a lot of other purposes for which like, you know, focusing on the battleground as opposed to the nation isn't necessary. With the uh, rise of artificial intelligence change, uh, how you go about polling? So before I, before I answer your question, I, I do think that AI is, might already be affecting the presence of presence, the present of polling, not the presence of polling, I'm sorry, um, by creating challenges for online pollsters who rely on these huge online panels that may now be mostly bots. Um, there's, you know, it depends on the vendor. Every online panel has different quality control checks. Each pollster has different quality control checks. So it's very hard to generalize about this problem. But I talk to people who say that they're getting rid of 30 to 40% of their online respondents now on data quality checks. And by data quality checks, I mean eliminating people or non-people who um, are not, you know, engaged, attentive, and cognizable respondents. Um, how much of a problem that is today, hard to judge and, again, hard to generalize. Going forward, I'm not really sure what the role of AI is. One thing I'll say is that, like, there are some cases where, like, machine learning and AI can be, like, helpful to pollsters, but we have really granular and big data, as you already saw. And one consequence of having really granular and big data um, is that a lot of our problems are not necessarily ones that, like, require like the most sophisticated um, modeling techniques. The modeling helps, but like it's the acquisition of the data itself in the first place that's the real challenge. And I don't know that AI helps very much in the data acquisition part of our task, which I think is the hard one. Um, one fun thing that someone's posited to me is maybe we don't even need to pull if AI gets such a great model for itself of the sentiment of the public. That one, I don't really know how that, I don't know how that would work, but like, Maybe that's conceivable, you know, with all of the sentiment analysis on social media plus the polling. Maybe they'll, maybe, maybe it can, uh, it'll eventually just learn to be the will of the people. And we'll all just ask, you know, what do the, what does the public want Biden to do? And then we'll all know. And maybe that'll be the end state there. But I don't know whether in our processes as they currently exist, I, at least I, I'm not sure that'll be a big role. I should also be honest, I have not given a tremendous amount of thought to it. I think these, 
You know, one thing about being the New York Times is that we get to be innovators, but I'm not sure we get to be radicals. And like, if we can't do, I don't feel like we, we can't take too many risks. You know, people will say the New York Times did blah, blah, blah. It's, if we were a different outlet, maybe this would be the sort of thing that we could start experimenting in. But as it is, like, I think other people are going to play with this first. And if they figure out something then that works, then we can try and refine it and use it for our own purposes. But in the short term, I can't imagine being like the industry leader on this until something else has happened. I have a, a question about the, the experiment, which is awesome. Uh, and I think it's, it's great that you wrote that. One question is, is the data publicly available uh, in a way, because I have a bunch of follow-up research questions. And the question two is, the slide that came next was not the one I expected. And so I'm curious if y'all looked at that and- What was uh, the slide ne next? Well, I think the next slide was how well y'all did in 2022, which oh. awesome too. But um, my, my question would be, so you have this really rich data. I would imagine you could come up in your mail poll with a guess of the people who would have also responded on the phone poll. I would guess you could model that pretty well, having tried this exercise in other realms. And so you could construct a sample from your mail poll that would have looked like your, your phone poll. And if you limit yourself to that, or you could wait, or however you want to go about doing this, do, you, do the results differ? Because it's interesting on the dimensions on which these people are different. But it only matters if, if they are also then different on these outcomes yeah. we care about. So I was, I was curious if you could speak to that. So, I, so first, to go in order, the data is not publicly available yet. And it's also not final. One interesting part of this process is that we are relying on Ipsos for the sake of preserving the anonymity of our respondents to do this match between their mail-based sample and the voter file. And as you may know, or as, as I know you know, and as many other people may not know, Wisconsin is a state where there's same-day registration on election day. So we need Ipsos to do a match for the post-election voter file in Wisconsin. And it turns out that the person who they had who knows how to do this is no longer with Ipsos. And so we are waiting for them to provide this data to us. Um, so that's why the, the analysis is not even final, strictly speaking, yet. We have also done exactly what you've said. Um, it's true it's not the next slide. Maybe, maybe it should be. But um, to, to step back for a second, you know, the one important difference between the mail survey and our survey is that you know, our survey is conducted off of a voter registration file. You saw that data. The mail survey that Ipsos commissioned was not. It was just a random sample of addresses. They then weighted the survey um, to match normal demographic targets for the, for the adult population of Wisconsin, but they didn't use all that voter file stuff that I showed you that we know about myself. Um, you, I told you that the results of the two surveys were about the same in their top line results, but if you control for all of the information that we have on the voter file, um, or if you want to take the approach that Aaron suggests and you actually model what our telephone respondents would look like based on our mail data, the mail data becomes more conservative than the time Siena data, even though the reported top lines are essentially identical. And that's true in the Senate race, the governor's race, and the presidential race, even though it's only the presidential race in the, um, in the top line figures. There are a lot of weird reasons that appear to be true here. Um, one of the most interesting is the sourcing of the telephone numbers. Um, so as I just mentioned, there are some people who give their, as I mentioned earlier, there are some people who give their telephone number when they respond to a poll. And there are other people where we get their numbers from an external source. 
the people who give their telephone numbers respond to surveys in much higher numbers. Uh, that's partly because their numbers are just better. Like, it's not some match that an algorithm could get wrong. Like, you said that when you registered to vote. I mean, you have to, maybe there's someone who's like lying to the state of Wisconsin when they fill in their form. But like, it's a pretty reliable number that, they, that, you, that these registrants give. And the second reason could be, I'll just note, that they may also be the sort of people who are likelier to want to talk to people on the phone or are willing to talk to people on the phone and, or people who are willing to share their information more publicly. And the people who um, we talk to, you can imagine three different groups of voters, people who give their number, people who don't give their number who we call, and people who do not have a number. The, peop the people who do not have a number and the people who did not give their number, but we have anyway, are more conservative. Controlling for that covers about half of the difference between um, the Times survey and the Ipsos survey, adding in all of our base voter file traits that we would usually use. Um, another series of things that you may have seen on this, but they do show up even in the top lines here, um, are things like born in Wisconsin. Registration date is a really interesting factor. Um, the people who give their cell phone numbers when they register to vote, by definition, these are people who have registered to vote in the last 15 years, right? If you registered to vote 20 years ago, you didn't have a cell phone to give the state of Wisconsin when you registered. So the kinds of people who are in that category I just mentioned, who gave their cell phones, they're by definition a more mobile group of people who have registered to vote more recently, and they're ever so slightly more democratic. Um, there are a few other traits too, and I think some of them are in the engagement um, like the sort of like vote choice, not sorry, vote, like the vote history style questions. Um, but if you just go, if you do exactly what you proposed and you model um, our telephone respondents as a function of the mail survey, the telephone is three points to the left. If you control for all of the things that are on the file and at our disposal, including the telephone confidence, including the telephone sourcing, that eliminates almost all of it. The self-reported questions that I have here, like trespassing signs, they, it, that doesn't seem to be relevant. Um, to my surprise, like even though I just like sort of talked to you all about them as a like, here is like this nice indication, like I think it tells a colorful story about who these people are. It doesn't really seem like if we do the sort of thing that you proposed, that that is the sort of thing that. Um, that makes a big difference. And in a way, that's actually kind of helpful because like, that would actually be a much harder problem for us to crack. Um, I should also note that then there's one final question here that, I am, that, that we don't know the answer to, and that's whether the male respondents themselves are possibly too far to the left. Um, that's harder for us to gauge. All right, sorry, we got this guy running around the back. <laughs> Hi, um, thank you for the talk. It was really interesting. Um, you talked about how Trump, prior to Trump, the GOP was kind of anticipating the changing demographics and start to support immigration reform, gun reform. And God knows we can't understand what goes on his head, in his head, but how did Trump predict that? What, did he realize that it was really the white votes that mattered more? Or I don't think that Trump was a... I, I talked a lot about calculating political actors looking at polls. I don't think Trump was one of those people. And I think that was probably part of why he managed to get it right, given that the polls were wrong. And 
I think that the reason Trump got it right was probably a product of his lived experience. Um, Donald Trump is from outer Queens, and he grew up in the 60s and 70s. This is an er a time of, like, toxic racial politics. Um, and it's a rare part of the country, I think, and a rare sort of place to have grown up in where they're not evangelical Christians. They're not very conservative on the, like, Paul Ryan, Mitt Romney kind of conservatism. They may be populist and hate those liberal elites in Manhattan, in fact, but they are pretty well off. Like, these are not, they may be, you know, you could be working class potentially, but you can also have quite a bit of money in Long Island or Queens. These are not people who are looking for unions or for redistribution of wealth. Um, and I think that that experience encapsulates a certain thread of the Republican Party, not a thread that's been dominant, for the last 60 years, but one that, um, uh, you know, was, was maybe it's the one we would have went down if Nixon hadn't been impeached and Agnew had become president instead of Reagan. You know, like, I think this is a thread that existed throughout Republican politics the whole time that Trump was, had, is organically part of and that he running organically as this kind of person at this political moment happened to capitalize on an opportunity. Um, that he probably intuited from his own level of dissatisfaction with the major parties. That's my personal theory of it and how he came to this. I definitely don't believe that it was like the people at Cambridge Analytica, you know, doing the like five traits analysis that they, you know, say, let them magically see the truth. I, I think that's all nonsense. Thanks uh, for the talk. I wanted to ask about sponsor effects across different survey vendors. So there's academic literature, which says they're not a thing, where they compare across different universities. As someone who's administered a survey that goes out on UC Berkeley letterhead and been called lots of nasty names, I have to think it is correlated with non-response, at least in my own lived experience. For a while, there was this thought that maybe Trafalgar had figured it out, and it seems like maybe they didn't. They weren't actually doing exactly what they said. Um, but given that I guess where I'm going with this is I think given education polarization, given trust in institutions, given what you showed us, that there's question. an 86% chance that you voted for Biden. Are there things that some survey vendors could be doing to make themselves appear more friendly to conservatives? I think it's a really good question. You know, one thing that I'll just say at the, at the top, because I, I get asked this all the time is our interviewers do not introduce themselves as calling from the New York Times. They are introduced as calling from the Siena College Research Institute. Um, I don't think Siena College is a brand name associated with the dreaded liberal elite, um, but it is still a college. So I'm open to the idea that it's still something that perks the interest of college educated liberals and does at best does nothing to attract those who didn't go to college and at worst could repel some. Um, another thing that people don't know though, is that most of our calls are not even placed by Siena College Research Institute anymore. They're, all, they're placed by call centers all over the country the largest of which is a call center called Recon MR. And Recon MR is meaningless. Um, and we have done testing to see whether it matters at all, whether Recon MR or Siena College is a better um, name to lead with. And it doesn't, according to Siena, and I have not been part of this myself, they use Siena and Recon all the time. This is not like Times Siena sponsored research. Um, according to them, it doesn't make a difference. Whether that's true for others, Berkeley, I don't know. <laughs> All right, we have a, the mic is on the way. 
Hi, th thanks for your talk um, <laughs> okay. today. Um, could you give us a prediction about third parties in the 2024 election? And no. also, uh, <laughs> one of my students asked um, in class about, did Jill Stein cost um, Hillary Clinton the election, 2016 election? And what are your views on that, given the state of exit polling? Well, if I recall correctly, Berkeley gave more votes to Jill Stein than Donald Trump. So that's a, a, a salient question here. Um, it's one of a small number of places in the country where that's true. There are parts of Western Massachusetts, like Northampton, Massachusetts, I believe, um, some other places that are in that category. Um, so I, I assume that a fifth of the crowd at least voted for Jill Stein in that election. Um, so if you go by the survey results and you reallocate Jill Stein supporters like in proportion to how they say they voted. My recollection is that it is not enough for Hillary Clinton to win the election, but I haven't looked at this in like five years now, so you're just gonna have to like put a pretty big asterisk on that, on that recollection. Someone is welcome to tell me I'm wrong and I'll just be like, they remember this better than I do or they Googled it. Um, in terms of the third party in 2024, I do not have a prediction about that. I do think that the conditions for a third party candidate to be relevant are certainly in place. There are a lot of voters who do not like either Donald Trump or Joe Biden. In 2020, I would guess that the preponderance of them voted for Joe Biden. If a third party candidate could appeal to those voters, I think it is reasonable to suppose that there is more upside for them among Biden voters than Trump voters. That does not mean that they will run a campaign that lets them do that. But in terms of just like, what is the theoretical opportunity like, if I could just know the truth of who could possibly vote for a third-party candidate in the next election, my guess is that there are more of them who voted for Biden, regardless of whether any third-party candidate is poised to capitalize on that opportunity or whether it would be decisive. And I'm absolutely not making a prediction on what that would involve. But. Thanks very much for the talk. It's just a lot of things to think about here. Let me ask some questions that come from a little different perspective. I've not been looking at the pre-election polls. I've been wallowing in the analysis of the American National Election Studies 2020. And it raises many of the same types of questions. Uh, in 2016, the bread and butter of the most expensive survey there is in this area exaggerated Hillary Clinton's margin of victory in the popular vote by a point, not much more, right? In 2020, of course, they could not do face-to-face -face interviewing. And they did almost no telephone interviewing. So the overwhelming proportion of those cases, they didn't, also didn't send a printed questionnaire. They were afraid it would scare everybody else out because it would be this thick and no one would want to I mean, look, I'm afraid of the code book for the survey, so, so which was, was like hundreds of pages. So it was in a number pages. of respects. They, they, the Biden's margin of victory in the three-category rendering, Biden, Trump, and all the ways people abstain uh, was 10 points. Uh, whereas in truth, it's Which three. I just, again, I think that's like no, Biden so, plus so. 14 is the result. Yeah, on it. It. Yeah. it depends on which way you <clears throat> calculate the percentages. So I'm doing a little box score here. Well, it's not because telephone interviewers are somehow related to this. Uh, it's not because they didn't offer financial incentives. They paid a substantial financial incentive, right? Um, there's an old question, been around for a long time, whether discouraged voters are more likely to A, not vote, and B, not do an interview. 
And so that's the main prism that I'm sort of thinking about here. The other one is the trust in institutions, you know, University of Michigan, Stanford University, those are the ugly they that people don't like. I suppose there could be something to that. Those are at least college football schools, but, though. Uh, I think. That's right. Okay. But I was wondering what you think of the, of the general question that uh, people who are on the discouraged side both are less likely to vote and are less likely to answer questions. So first, it's entirely true um, for those that aren't aware. I mean, people who, and we you know, have the vote history on our respondents, as we mentioned, to have a, a really clear idea of how um, turnout history and response are related. But the people who like vote in primaries and regularly vote in general elections, they're like more than two and a half times likelier to respond to a survey than someone who has not voted um, in a midterm or a general. And it's entirely true. We do a lot of work to reach these people, which is to say we pay a lot of money. Um, and the way we do that is um, that we, we, before we conduct the survey, and if you looked very carefully on my spreadsheet, you can see that I, in the bottom right here, we have a modeled response rate for the likelihood that I would respond to the survey on a cell phone or a landline. And we use these probabilities to determine the number of records that we call for each respondent. Um, you happen to have on staff someone who is very familiar with this over there named Aaron Hartman, who um, did this sort of thing for the Obama campaign. Um, but the basic idea is that the less likely you are to respond, the more likely we are to call you. And that is very expensive, as you can imagine, because we're calling many, many people who are extremely unlikely to respond to get a small number of interviews just to make sure that they represent their small share of the sample. This does not necessarily solve the question of whether the people that we get who are unlikely to respond are actually representative of that far larger group of people. Um, we have some, we have all that voter file data to um, check whether they look right. So did we get the right number of low turnout Democrats? That's a knowable thing for us. We know whether we do or don't. And thanks to like various statistical techniques, we do. That still doesn't answer the question, of course, of whether we're getting the right low turnout Democrats, even if we have the right number of them. And that's, that's the sort of non-response problem that we can't crack with the data at our disposal. We can only, it's, then we're at the diagnosis of exclusion stage. I will say that in our data, both in 2022 and in 2020, the low turnout voters are more for Trump. So I think that our expense pays off, at least in terms of helping Donald Trump in our polling. And it does not surprise me that pollsters who do not take similar steps could end up being more democratic. Um, I, now, since you asked me about the ANES, I do have to ask whether it's a seven-figure or eight-figure budget for it in 2024. Money <laughs> So, Nate, um, great talk. Thank you. So I've been reading, you know, weekly what you have to say or whenever it comes out. And I guess I've been also reading a book by Phil Tetlock about how difficult it is to forecast the future. And um, so maybe how should we think about the polls as they are today, including what you just showed us? I mean, I... 
I would say, you know, we'd be more confident in predicting the outcome of the Republican nomination process. Yeah, you should have asked me about that. Uh, than anything else. But really, as a citizen, someone who's reading this stuff, how, how would you kind of take today's data and think about the election going forward? Not as a pollster, not as a political scientist, but just, you know, an ordinary person. My, like, my short answer on this is something like, I think that the polls should be taken seriously, but that doesn't mean that I think they're predictive. Like, I don't think that they necessarily indicate what the final result will be. But I take them seriously insofar as I think they're based on considered, informed, and well-developed views on the part of Americans. This is not, to my mind, in a different election, in contrast. I might say we shouldn't even take them seriously. It's a year to go. The candidates haven't been nominated. I don't think that's true in this case. We've literally had this election before. These candidates have been around for decades. Um, so I do think we should take them seriously, and the attitudes that people express about them are real. Now, just because they're real doesn't mean that they're bound to last until last, next November. And in fact, taking them seriously could potentially empower different people to change them. You know, the Biden campaign, as I mentioned, is going to make decisions about how it's going to campaign based on where they stand today. And they will be doing that precisely because they take seriously what the numbers are now, not because they believe they're predictive. They're predictive. I mean, they could potentially give up under certain circumstances if the numbers got bad enough, and that certainly won't happen. Um, in general, I'm not a fan of predicting elections. A lot of people don't realize this, uh, but I have never had anything to do with predicting an election beforehand, even when the Times has done it, like my name's not on it. Um, and there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, but one reason is that in our era, none of our elections that, none of the elections that we care about are clear enough for the prediction, to my mind, to be, like, operationally useful. Um, you know, to the question about, like, whether you would vote in 2016. I mean, there's never been a presidential election, as long as I've been around doing this stuff, that you could make such a clear prediction about the outcome that you would be like, oh, they've predicted X would win, I don't need to vote. I mean, that, that has been true in different points of history where if we had made such predictions, that could have been a reasonable interpretation. But it hasn't been in my time. Or, or to use a sports analogy, every election that I've been a part of has been an election in which the, the team has the ball in the fourth quarter and a chance to win. They're all, yeah, if, if it really comes down to, like, can you call it, they're all too close to call by that standard. So from the standpoint of, like, an engaged citizenry, like, there's no, I would absolutely not say that any of the polls, like, merit the kind of, you know, the word prediction to me, and I would be curious to look it up in the dictionary, but to me, a prediction is, like, a statement of what you believe will happen. It is not, like, some sort of probabilistic claim that you think Biden is likely to win. I have an opinion on that, which you did, which I'm not going to count your question up prediction as um, asking, just, to, just so that we're clear about the meaning of the term, but... None of them, no elections I've been a part of has been, um, you know, clear enough that a prediction could, could I think, be safely made. I, I, mean, at least, I mean, you could do it for gambling or something, but not for, <laughs> not as a citizen. On immigration, it as you know, Democratic governors are calling for tougher stance by Biden. What is the attitude in your um, polling of Latin voters toward, let's say, more restrictive policies at the border? 
in our polling, voters of Hispanic or Latino origin are more conservative than people might guess on border issues. Uh, that doesn't mean that they are conservatives, but they are more supportive of Republican policies on the border and on issues like asylums uh, and like whether people should be allowed to seek asylum than they are supportive of Republican candidates, which is to say that if you're a Republican candidate and you're talking about this issue, you may have the potential to make gains among Hispanic voters by talking about these sort of issues. Now, this is all very sensitive to the question, and there are questions that are relevant to the border where Hispanic voters have very different opinions. Like if we were talking a few years ago about comprehensive immigration reform, which is something that is now off the table, Hispanic voters backed comprehensive immigration reform by a huge margin in the polls. So the fact that they're sympathetic to conservative policies on the border doesn't necessarily make them conservative on immigration as a whole. But with our politics now focused like pretty narrowly on the border and not to take us back a few years, not ridiculous things Trump said about Mexican judges, if you remember that stuff, or, you know, building a wall. Now that we're like more narrow, now that like all of that other stuff is sort of gone and we're mostly focused on just like, do you want more border security or not? Do you think that people should be allowed to enter the country um, on the basis of asylum and, you know, seek, um, you know, a, a legal status for some amount of time? Like there, that there's not as much public support for that if we're counting that as conservative right now even among Hispanic and Latino voters. Uh, one thing I'll note here, by the way, just to bring it back to one thing I said, is I think this is a really interesting case of where, you know, Donald Trump himself has potentially gotten in the way of, has, has at once been an important part of making it, the democratic system more responsive to issues that were previously being, that were previously not addressed, um, but also has himself gotten in the way of his own voters' causes here. Like, there's a version of Donald Trump who didn't himself become the dominating story of the last decade um, that wouldn't have caused the same reaction among liberals and progressives and even many moderates um, and would have potentially created the political conditions for some of these issues to be addressed, but uh, that didn't happen. And I think now that Trump is gone, we actually are now having this sort of strange bipartisan moment where now even Biden is willing to talk about um, building elements of the wall and so on. Um, and taking border security more seriously. And that may actually prove to, you know, whatever you think of the policy on the merits from the standpoint of like the health of the democracy and if you believe that the will of the, of, you know, the public should eventually make its way into the policies of government, there is something healthy to it. All right, please join me in a round of applause. So, I'm sure... If you didn't before, I'm sure you now agree that um, Nate is well-deserving of the 2023 um, Citroen Award for Achievements in Public Opinion Research, so it's my um, honor to present you this uh, large obelisk. <laughs> the Washington Monument, really. Yes. Thank so, you. Um, so thank you, Nate. We'll, we'll take a few pictures, and then um, we will uh, uh, the recept we'll have a reception here for the next hour, so please stay, enjoy some, uh, I think we have some, like, refreshments in the back. I see some, I think some tubs of wine back there. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, please stay. Um, if you have more questions for Nate, he'll be here uh, for the next, for the next little bit. And thank you all for coming. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. Follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos on Berkeley News at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.